Welcome to This Is How, an ACLU of North Carolina podcast that unlocks the untold stories of justice, freedom, and activism from right here in North Carolina. We will explore how we can make change happen one voice at a time. Get ready to be inspired, informed, and empowered to create a fairer future for all. And now, here's our host. Hi, everyone. I'm Calvin from the ACLU of North Carolina. My pronouns are he, him, his. Welcome back to another episode of This Is How. Today, we will discuss how to safeguard Black and disabled students from overly broad and disproportionate disciplinary actions within the school system. But first, let's start with beyond the headlines. If you're in North Carolina, you've likely seen in the news that the ACLU of North Carolina has released a 29-page report shedding light on alarming racial disparities in school-based complaints of disorderly conduct in NC schools. ACLU report shows Black students referred to police at higher rate than white counterparts. Schools in NC's border belt refer Black students to police more often. NC students of color and students with disabilities are sent to police 2.5 times as often, ACLU says. This report paints a vivid picture of the challenges faced by Black and disabled students. Between 2017 and 2023, Black students were disciplined at an alarming four times the rate of their white peers, revealing a stark contrast in the treatment of youth in our educational institutions. The report titled The Consequences of Cops in North Carolina Schools critically examined the adverse impact of law enforcement officers within our educational spaces. Diving into the intricacies of the state's vague disorderly conduct in schools law, we explore how it grants broad discretion to school resource officers, ultimately contributing to biased punishments. The report's recommendations advocate for a shift in priorities, from mental health funding over police presence to repealing the disorderly conduct law and ending the regular deployment of law enforcement officers in schools. The urgent call to conduct equity assessments of police impact resonates as we discuss the compelling need to invest in our children, schools, and communities, creating safe and inclusive learning environments for all. Today, we are joined by Carlton Powell, Supervising Attorney for the Right to Education Project from Legal Aid of North Carolina, and Michelle Delgado, Staff Attorney for the ACLU of North Carolina. For the next few minutes, we will discuss key aspects of the report, intertwining them with excerpts from a pre-recorded conversation that features Amory, a Black student from a North Carolina middle school, and her mother, Regina, as they recount an incident that happened at Amory's school. Let's take a listen. Basically, I was bullied and harassed by a student, another student. He basically talked about me and, you know, tried to physically fight me over my weight and or how I looked in general, he would make comments about me or my body in general. So after a while, when I didn't respond, he kind of got upset about it. And there was a teacher that said that I physically touched her with my hands or however it went. She said that I end up touching her physically and hurting her. But when it was time to actually get the story across, she kind of said that I didn't touch her and then she said I did so it was like a uh we really didn't know the situation thing of uh, a misunderstanding with the whole situation it was just the teacher called the crazy. resource officer for help then what when she called him for help he came down and he aggressively told me to get out of my chair and come with him I asked him where I was going because I did not know where I was going. He aggressively told me just to get up and get my things and go wherever he wanted me to go. 
asked him again where he wanted me to go. He didn't respond, but he was still aggressive and rude. So I went walking down the hallway and my first thought was maybe he wants me to go to the office. So when I went to the office, they kind of asked why I was there. And I'm like, um, I was told to come down here and they were, they said that they knew nothing about the situation and they didn't get a call or they didn't get anything in general, noticing that I was supposed to go down there. So Michelle and Carlton, after listening to that clip, would either or both of you be willing to discuss whether this SRO followed expected and appropriate protocol? I would say no. Um, and we hear the first part of A. Marie's clip, and this is where she's in the classroom in the SROs demanding that she leave the classroom. The SRO uh, has um, should function in three ways. He should be uh, an informal counselor, uh, an educator, and a, a law enforcement officer. He should be exemplifying respectful behavior. Um, he should uh, be trying to um, create a rapport with students that encourage them to want to comply with him and interact with him. And so that's not the way to do it. It's not, you don't go in the classroom and, and order the kid out of the chair. You can easily go into the classroom and ask the child to come with you. Explain why you're asking the child to come with you. Um, she described him as being aggressive. What's the reason for your aggression? Um, so I would say uh, uh, no. Um, oftentimes what we see is SROs um, behaving like they're on the street and that they're um, interacting with a threatening individual on the street. And that individual is typically an adult on the street and is threatening. Here you have a child who's in a classroom sitting in a chair. So what's threatening about that? Why do you feel the need to be uh, aggressive? And so I think you're, you're, you're creating an environment where you're causing children to fear you. And, and when a child's afraid, uh, they're going to react uh, emotionally. Whereas why not try to um, talk to that child like a child should be talked to? Uh, and I think that's, uh, that includes respect, but also some understanding, compassion, and uh, I mean, yeah, so to answer your question, I would say, uh, no, he, he didn't, um, he didn't uh, interact with her the way he should have. And I would have to agree with Carlton. I think part of a SRO's job is to also de-escalate by going in and being aggressive or automatically treating the child like a criminal. Um, you're not de-escalating the situation. Um, I thought, I believe a better approach would have been to inform the child what they have been told, ask the child from their perspective what happened. Sometimes just asking a child what is going on, how they're feeling, so that can de-escalate a situation. Sometimes children just want to be heard, and that will also allow them, will encourage them to comply. So as far as like asking the student to follow you to the office, they'll be probably be more inclined to do so if they feel like you're listening to what they're saying. So there were definitely better uh, techniques or approaches that the SRO could have taken um, to de-escalate that moment instead of causing fear within that child. Yeah, thank you both so much for, for answering that. 
Um, from what I'm understanding, like you were saying, this was not appropriate behavior, but also what I'm kind of gaining from what y'all have said is that this is not uncommon for SROs to do in terms of the way that they interact with students. Am I understanding that correctly? That's correct. From when I was a juvenile defender, a lot of of children would mention how SROs would interact with them and their experiences with them. This is not to say all SROs act this way, but you know, it, it is not an uncommon story either. In this particular instance involving this particular SRO, A. Marie says that he has not tried or attempted to develop a rapport with the students at the school. But at least in this particular instance, you have an individual who isn't, or at least according to A. Marie, isn't trying um, and has a history of not trying, at least from A. A. Marie's perspective, to develop um, this relationship. You know, and and that's vital. If you're going to have these officers in the school, they need to be there um, because they want to be there and because they they care about children. And um, it seems to me, um, based on what A. Marie says and some other cases that we have, that some SROs um, just don't care about children or don't love the children and don't want to be there. So it's you have to ask, well, why are you there in the first place? They called him and he came down there. And the first thing I asked was for my mom to be on the phone because I felt uncomfortable from the get-go because they were there was more than one person in the room surrounding me. Um, I asked them three times before they called my mom, but they refused to call my mom the first time I asked. So what did you do? I picked up my cell phone out of my pocket and I called my mom right away and I put it on I put it on speaker so she could hear the conversation and she put herself on mute. And as my mom was on the phone, they did not know that my mom was on the phone. So my mom was just listening to everything that was happening. And I told my mom repeatedly that I felt uncomfortable and that they basically would not put her on the phone after my first time asking for my mom to be on the phone. After listening to this clip, what are your thoughts on Amory being denied the choice to call her mom? I don't quite understand why you wouldn't want a parent involved or taking part in this conversation. It doesn't really make sense to me. A. Marie was 14 at the time. She's in middle school. She's scared. Um, what is the downside of having a parent involved in that conversation? I don't think there's a logical explanation for that. So even if they were considering short-term suspending this child, she should have the right to de- explain her side of the story. Um, and I don't see why she wouldn't be entitled shouldn't or shouldn't be entitled to have her mom take part in her telling of that side of the story. It would just bring some clarity, potentially. It's protect, It's protective. And a parent, look, there's a big push out here for parents to be more involved in, in their children's education. So why wouldn't you want her, a parent, to be involved? If this was involving another student in a different situation and ones I can really think of, parents will be arguing for their rights to be involved in this. Yeah. I suppose they could argue they were going to uh, let her be in on the conversation later, that maybe they wanted to, I don't know, figure out what was going on first. But I think in the end, um, the default should be let's have the parent be in on the conversation. I'm going to always refer back to my theme of de-escalation, right? Um, we're talking about students who are children, who have a lot of emotions, who are going through a lot of changes. and 
if a student asks for their parent to be present or called, why not? Um, as staff, you would want to de-escalate any situation, right? That's the only way to resolve whatever issue is going on, to get answers, to get clarity about what happened. And the only way you can really do that is if all parties are calm. And so if the child is telling you that they want to speak to their parent, why not just allow that to happen? It's really concerning that you want to keep them at a state of distress and deny them the right to speak to their parent. For what reason? Like, wh what is the cause? So I'm always going to advocate for any action that would de-escalate a situation. And in that situation, they should have just allowed her to call her parent. I was a teacher for five years in Warren County, high, uh, North Carolina. I really tried to handle things myself in the classroom. And I think why I'm falling back on that, and it may I be totally irrelevant, is just because I think if I were in a situation and my student is calling out to speak with her mom, it would, it would touch me in my heart. You know what I'm saying? I'm just trying to put myself in that situation. And I would, I would try to, I would try to, 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 to ease your, your concern by, yeah, letting you talk to your mom. If I'm, you know, if you're in that situation, it's almost bringing tears to my eyes. You know what I'm saying? Like, cause it, I'm just picturing that. Like what, why would you not that, why would you not let a child speak to their parent when they're asking, asking for that? You know what I'm saying? So I think, I don't know if it's so much, a, it could be a respect issue, but one thing that I keep going back to in these kinds of cases is, do you love these children? You know, do you feel for them? Do you care about them? And if you care about them and you love them and you feel for them, then, then try to ease their concern, allay their fears. And if she needs, I, can I, I want my mom on this call, let her mom be on the call. So, you know, I mean, some of it has to do with respect. Some of it has to do with, like, how, how much are you feeling for this child right now, you know? And I'm not trying to say that, that this administration doesn't, you know, but it's something that I keep thinking about. I feel like sometimes adults, um, when they're interacting with children, right, that um, they have this complex of, like, you're a child, I'm the adult. And then if, especially if the adult is a person in authority, Sometimes that um, that particular adult might, I guess, they do kind of lack respect for the child because they feel like, okay, I'm in this position, I'm older than you, you have to listen to me. And in the midst of that, they're losing that mutual respect with the child. So I'm wondering, if was this a situation where, yes, she was asking to talk to her parent or her mother, and it was, you can do that on my time. You know, sometimes adults do that. Like they might let you do like grant your request to talk to your parent or do this and that. But their whole thing is, is it you can do that when I say so. And I feel like sometimes that's just unnecessary. You're, you're adding fuel to the flame of whatever is going on, whatever distress is going on. Um, yes, um, students are children and you as staff are the adults. And there is some deference, of course, respect. But I believe respect is still mutual. And just because you are older to someone does not mean that you can disrespect them or basically ooh, make your authority so heavy on them that they can't get normal things like their request to call their mom granted. Like you were saying, it's heartbreaking to to hear that she was so explicit in her discomfort and her distress and it being denied 
thing that would have brought her some kind of calmness, some kind of reassurance, um, especially in a room full of adults and not one of them being on your side. It's bothering that that this was a situation that happened. I'm curious because we are talking about how this impacts uh, students of color and students with disabilities more often than white students. In y'all's experience or opinion, would this situation have been this way if it was a white student? The cases where we've represented children who have had these kind of impacts or experiences with SROs have only involved uh, children of color. So I can't, I can't tell you if uh, white children are involved differently. I mean, if we look at the numbers, black students are referred for complaints way higher than white students. I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure I can make an educated guess that uh, white students, when they request to talk to their parent, they tend to probably get that phone call. Do I have numbers to support that? No. Is that my opinion? Absolutely. I think it's just clear looking at what the situation is in schools across the state. So, I mean, that's where that implicit bias comes in and um, how people, uh, staff treats students based on their race, uh, whether they mean to or not. Um, that's just the the world we're in right now, unfortunately. And yes, that's my opinion. Yeah, that that implicit bias, I think, is a really important point. Um, you know, the statistics show that Black students are seen as aggressive almost automatically. It makes sense that students of color experience this far more often and and more more severity than white students. Can I um, just follow up on that too? Yeah, yeah, of course. It's just what we do know. It, it kind of just to piggyback off what you're saying is that the the reason children are suspended. The, the number one reason children are suspended in North Carolina schools is defiant behavior or slash disorderly conduct. And most in most cases, that alleged conduct is being um, exhibited by children of color. As a matter of fact, statistically, it's factual that the highest number of kids who are suspended in North Carolina are ninth graders. And number one reason for the suspension is defiant, kind of defiant behavior, disorderly conduct. So we've got to ask ourselves, and, the, and the, those children are black generally. So we've got to ask ourselves, like, what's at, what's going on? It's a, this is a ninth grader who's not following rules. Um, they're in a new school. They, it, we all remember what it was like to be a ninth grader. So there's something else happening here, and it's not just... Um, you know, my mentor is Chris Henning, and she talks about normal adolescent behavior being the cause of some of this. And so we need to understand that this is typically children are exhibiting normal adolescent being behavior and they're being punished for it. Um, and for their cultural reasons, we need to be thinking about. If it is normal adolescent behavior, white students are given a pass of like, oh, they're just being... You know, they're acting their age, and black students are seen as being aggressive and disorderly and being punished for it. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, the, we are characterized as being, like, loud, right? And maybe we are loud, but is being loud being disobedient or disorderly, or is that just us being us? Right. In addition to that, I, there are studies that show that, um, for some reason, people tend to look at black students as older than what they are compared to white students, especially um, black girls, they tend, 
um, society tends to view them as a, a larger age than what they are. And I feel like that plays into how people handle those kids. They don't see them as kids anymore. They see them as young adults when they're really a child. So I believe that adds into the issue that we're addressing. Yeah, older, larger, and more threatening. You know, typically, especially when the person viewing them is outside of their race. When we're looking at ourselves, we don't see ourselves as threatening. Someone outside of our race looks at us, a younger person, and looks at them as threatening. You look at Tamir Rice, you know, statistics back this up. As my mom was speaking to them and asking them why was I being put in the office and why was the situation happening and why did it go on in general, she put her hands in my face, the principal, and there was other teachers, or not teachers, staff surrounding me, and they were like aggressive towards me. And they were telling me basically how my mom should have taught me better and how I'm really disrespectful and more things that would affect me. When I walked out the room, my book bag was hanging off my shoulder because as you can tell, I was upset. I, my face was full of tears and I was just upset and needed a moment. So when I walked out, there was a trash can in front of me and I was not, I was not looking straight and I was not, you know, focused on what was in front of me. I was just emotional and just ready to go home. I mean, that, I mean, that's what a middle schooler would feel like at the moment if it was happening to them. So I tripped over the trash can, the trash can fell forward and I kind of try to pick up the trash if I did drop any. And they came, the staff, I believe it was the principal and more of the staff came, you know, rushing out of the room as if I was destroying their property. And they basically harassed me and said that I was destroying their property and that I would get a charge for what I was doing. And they just brung up how I aggressively touched the teacher and how I was getting more charges for that and how I would be sent to OCLC and get what I deserved. And I was just upset and they called the, they called him the SR, the, the, the research officer. They called him to the room and said they needed help. As he got there, they said, put this young lady in cuffs. And I asked, I asked why am I being put in cuffs or put in cuffs in general as because I'm just a juvenile. Like all I wanted to do was talk to my mom in general. I didn't want to be put in cuffs. I didn't want to be slammed aggressively or any of that to even happen. He snatched my book back off my shoulders and he told me, turn around. And I kept asking him, why am I being put in cuffs? He still gave me a response. He put me in cuffs and he slammed me down in a seat. So there are a couple of things about this clip that I want us to uh, discuss. My first question to you both is, what are y'all's thoughts, um, feelings, opinions about the way that the teachers and administrators reacted when Amory left the room and accidentally hit the trash can with her book bag? It's upsetting. It's so frustrating. I just I just don't understand why these professional staff felt the need that they had to escalate this situation 
all the way to the point where she's being slammed into a seat and being handcuffed. How did we get there? Right. Does she have a weapon? Is she like actively trying to harm someone? We're just talking about a child who is upset, who accidentally hit a trash can. It's really egregious how that entire thing played, like panned out. And I don't understand at what point does staff feel like they're trying to de-escalate the situation. There was no there was no actions taken by them to de-escalate. They were verbally degrading her, like, this is what you deserve. You're going to catch a charge. Things like that. What What is that instilling in the child besides feeling like a criminal? Right? We're talking about a situation where um, there's clearly some miscommunication. Something happened where everybody's distressed. And instead of allowing her to be heard, allowing her to feel supported, you are now basically labeling, labeling her as a criminal. You're treating her as such. You're handcuffing her. You're slamming her down to the seat. What is that teaching her? What is that instilling in her? It's just really upsetting because... You know, students are supposed to feel safe at schools. They're supposed to feel supported. Um, you know, we're, staff are supposed to be developing these young minds into active people in society. And how does that help her growth at all? So it's just really upsetting. That's a, it is. That's what it is upsetting. I, we typically, uh, at the Right to Education Project, uh, bring complaints against school districts um, and school boards. Typically, what that creates is like an oppositional relationship or an adversarial relationship. And so we're on this side defending the child and they're on their side defending themselves. That That's the legal fight. I say that to say, like, I understand that, especially after COVID, that things are, are tense in schools. And um, it almost feels like things are a little out of control. Uh, and I think teachers and administrators want and need help. Um, and I believe that. And they're underfunded and under-resourced. Um, and that's what the law has said. That's not my opinion. That's what the courts have said. Um, so I, I just want to say that, and I acknowledge that. That doesn't excuse the fact that in situations like this, you don't need to put your hands in a child's face. You know, you don't need to be telling the child your mom should have raised you better. Uh, and you certainly don't need to be calling the SRO to put this child in handcuffs. Um, what you hear is Amory saying her, her face was full of tears. She's, she's emotional. She's crying. She admits somewhere in the interview that she was, I think, um, defensive um, and emotional. And she may have even said things that um, may have... Uh, ruffled some feathers. I don't, she doesn't say that exactly, but you're, you're the adult in the room. It's three of you. You, you need to be exemplifying behavior. It's, it goes back to de-escalation and training is all I want to say. And, and culture, setting a culture. And how do we want to interact with each other? And how am I going to teach you how to interact with me? If I'm interacting this way with you, I'm teaching you how to interact with others the way I'm interacting with you, right? So this is an educational moment. What are we creating when we teach our students that this is how an adult interacts with a child? And then you ask yourself, well, why are they, why are they fighting in the schools? Or why are they fighting in the streets? Or why? Well, I get disrespected, you get this, and you're, it's all emotion. Let's just chill out a minute 
And I'm saying this from being a former teacher where a student threatened to fight me. Right? So it's not like I'm coming out coming at this from left field somewhere. Um, but it, I I get way too emotional talking about that. I love talking about this stuff, so I can go on forever. But yeah, I mean, I don't I just want to be clear that I'm not coming down on the administration, but I do think I, and if they were honest with themselves, I bet they would step back and say, I probably could have handled that differently. I believe that. This is a hard working principal. Um, I believe she was principal a year at one point. So, and, and she, she's, I think legitimately she's trying, but this wasn't her at her best, I don't believe. And I, and I believe if she's honest with herself, she, she would say that. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point about the de-escalation. Um, you know, because they called the SRO to de-escalate the situation that they themselves had escalated. Um, because like you were saying, Amory is a child and she's going to have reactions and emotions that are difficult for her to to manage because, I mean, in, in her position, who wouldn't, right? Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering if you think that this situation... And, and when I first heard the audio, it was very like the parallels to um, real life police interactions, not that school isn't real life, but like outside of school police interactions with people of color. It's it's a very clear parallel to me. Um, and I'm wondering if if y'all feel the same way, if you think that the schooling with the SRO is a completely different category than the way police officers interact with black people out in the world, or if this is somehow related are you asking, is there a parallel from what's being seen in school compared to what's going on in society? Yes. Because if I went, so, I did a really roundabout way of no, getting it's there, fine. so thank you for, <laughs> for putting that more concisely. Yes. So I would say, yes, there's a parallel, hence the whole term um, school-to-prison pipeline, right? And so what I feel like we're seeing is that I think at some point you asked, should it be the same or like— is, it's, it should be similar and it shouldn't, right? In schools, you're dealing with children who are going through changes, who are growing up, who are dealing with hormones, who's dealing with the pressures of family, life, school, just truly adjusting. So I do feel like SROs should act differently than how officers are in society. There should be a higher level of patience, a higher level of sensitivity um, with working with kids. There, um, If anything, my hope would be that SROs would be masters of de-escalation, de right? Because um, a lot of childish behavior doesn't necessarily make sense, hence why we call it childish behavior. Um, so I believe SROs should be a little bit more, have more expertise with dealing with such actions and de-escalating those situations while dealing with children's emotions. We've all interacted with kids. We understand that sometimes their reactions do, do not make sense or they're overly reacting or... Um, if you add in the student population that has disabilities, right, that's a whole nother, a, a whole community of kids that you got to have especially higher patience in um, more skillful ways of de-escalating those children and calming them down. So um, I think what we're seeing in schools is that SROs who do not care are acting like these are just regular Black people in the streets and what we've seen in the streets ever since George Floyd and before that, really, George Floyd is just when people started filming things, really. Um, I feel like these officers come in, some of them come in and they have that same attitude that they have dealing with grown people in the streets. And now they're in schools treating the uh, high schoolers, middle schoolers the same way. And that's not right. I feel the, the same way in that 
there should be some distinction. There's, this is not the street. This is a school. Um, this is not a place where you f- should feel like you need to exert your authority. You should be building relationships. They undergo training, the school resource office. It's only 40 hours, and I think it's just one training. It's not ongoing. Um, I think that that's part of the problem. But, yeah, it's, they, they have, and look, I, the, it's a national agency, I forget what it's called, but uh, of the school resource officers, they, they have an, an exemplary SRO, and that SRO, as I mentioned before, is supposed to serve three functions. It's supposed to be an educator and an informal counselor. No one's expecting the officer in the street to be an informal counselor, right? Um, not to say that we shouldn't, I mean, but they have a tough job. Um, but in the school system, that's what they're supposed to be. And if you're going in there with the mindset of, I'm just a law, I'm just a law enforcement officer, and I'm just going to go in here and look for crime and arrest individuals who commit crime or worse, um, then you're not doing your job. Um, and I do think that if you're going to be an SRO, you should want to be an SRO. I mean, you should want to be in school. You should want to work with kids. You should want to interact with kids. And you should be going in there every day with the mindset that I want to build relationships. And I, and I, I can't say how many SROs aren't that way. And I, and I do know, I want to say that when I was a teacher, there was an exemplary SRO in there. Um, and I hope he hears this because I've always wanted to commend him for the fact that he was from the, the community. He played basketball with us. We called him by his nickname. Um, the kids loved him, and he loved them. Um, and I never saw him be disrespectful. You know, these are things that, um, that for me, uh, say, like, I, I, I use him, and I, and I weigh every other SRO up next to him, you know? And, and he did not go into the classroom or the school with this mindset of, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay down the law, <laughs> you know? That's not what he's there for. He was really there to, to be a resource. That's in his name. This officer's laughing at Amory. He's mocking Amory. He's saying, you're my prisoner now. Uh, he, it sounds to me like he doesn't belong there. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And Amory or her mom mentioned that this SRO broke someone's arm prior to this. Which is not definitely not the way to create a mutual, respectful, beneficial relationship. And so I'm wondering if like y'all could also kind of expand on the way that he, the SRO in, in this in Amory's experience, confronted her in terms of like handcuffing her, slamming her down, taking her phone, you know, doing all of these things. What what are I know we kind of talked about how police officers are different than SROs, but this feels a lot like police officer behavior and not SRO behavior. So I'm wondering if like maybe you could just kind of expand on why his confrontation of Amory was inappropriate in this situation. I mean, SROs are employed by the sheriff's office. They're not uh, school employees. So if you have an SRO who goes into a situation like this, and doesn't try to de-escalate it, doesn't try to build any kind of relationship, doesn't try talking to the child. It doesn't even look, A. Marie says in her interview, as you as you point out, um, 
that or her mom does, that this sort of slammed the child down and broke his uh, arm earlier in the school year. It's also my understanding that Amory's never had a positive interaction with this SRO. Um, she's, she says he isn't, doesn't seem to be there to build relationships. It doesn't sound like he's, he's said to her, good morning, or how you doing? Or how's school going? Or, or how can I help you? That's what he should be doing. And he, and he doesn't do that. What, what her, the interaction she does have with him is this one. Um, so, you know, I, everything about it to me is inappropriate. I would say not only inappropriate, but, and, and Michelle could probably speak to this a lot better than me, but it's illegal. I would say it's excessive. I'd say it's unconstitutional. Um, you have to consider a child's age. You have to consider whether or not this child posed any kind of threat to anyone physically. Um, you have to consider what the uh, offense she's, she's alleged to have committed when you're determining how you should respond to her. You also have to consider whether or not she has a weapon or not, right? So like if she doesn't pose a threat to you and she's not, you're not accusing her of actually harming anyone and she's not a flight risk, um, then what do you need to put her in handcuffs for? You know where she lives. You know who her mom is. You know where she goes to school. You have all the, all the knowledge you need about her to write a citation if you wanted to go to court. You know what I'm saying? I mean, one thing we don't talk about enough, I think, in, in, in one of my um, uh, supervisors, I was a public defender in Philadelphia, raised this to me once. He said, um, why do we even, why, why do we ever need to even handcuff children? You know what I'm saying? Like, especially in the school context, I understand if this child has a weapon, right, or is a serious threat to, to safety. That's not what I'm saying. But in instances where they're not, the, the need for handcuffs is, is questionable, right, at best. Because you don't need to stop them from, you're not stopping them from doing anything. Generally, handcuffs are used to stop, so you, you're, you fear for your safety around them, or you're trying to keep them from running. You, don't, you think they're, they're going to go somewhere. Here, she's, where is she going to go? And you're not going to lose her. You know what I'm saying? So if you want to bring a charge against her, okay, write a citation. Give a citation to her mom. You know what I'm saying? So like him putting her in handcuffs, in my opinion, aside from the talking disrespectfully to her, the putting her in handcuffs to me is excessive. Now, I'm not a judge, but that's what I would argue. In a nutshell, say it would be inappropriate for that reason. Now, there's a different level of, um, well, school resource officers uh, only need reasonable suspicion um, to detain a person. And I suppose under the law, you might argue that this child was detained and not arrested. And you have to have reasonably suspect that she had committed a crime or violated uh, a, a school rule to detain her. And by detain, I mean put her in handcuffs. Uh, you have a teacher say in the office that, actually, I don't know who hit me, Right. Well, I, f I don't even know if I was hit. She was brushed up against. So, one, was there, did, did Amory violate a school rule or a school law or a law? It's questionable. And then the other question is, is even if she did, what 
is the need for handcuffs behind that, you know? Um, so I, I'm obviously biased, you know? So if you ask me, I'm going to say he, he, what he did was illegal and inappropriate. Um, but um, I, I think if we're objective, uh, we would all agree with that. We're talking about a trash can that fell over and words that were flying across. At what point does that qual- like bring you to the point that you have to say, I need to handcuff this child and slamming her down? It just seems all excessive to me. And it really goes back to my belief that schools really need to, not, not schools, but the state needs to really invest in schools, um, mental health and community care workers. Because um, at this point, this would have been a perfect moment for a crisis management team, right? Something who works, somebody who works in mental health who can come in if, if the principal, even the SRO calls them like, hey, can you come through and de-escalate this situation? That would be more ideal for moments like this. There's no reason why the first um, the first answer is, I need to handcuff her and let's talk about charges. Everybody talks about the school to prison pipeline and how it needs to be dismantled. But what actions are being taken to really stop that? This is a simple situation where we can cut that that pipe, right? Having a tiff where something falls and people are yelling or cursing or whatever situation does not call for the child to now be entered the juvenile system. It just is really excessive. It doesn't make sense. And it, it goes against what what uh, professionals in the education system are saying that they they want changed. So I believe that school resource officers um, should do a better job of de-escalating, should do a better job of maybe utilizing some of the, the mental health providers or social workers, school counselors, whatever staff are there to help, maybe work hand-in-hand with them about what can be done in these situations to de-escalate. Um, I still want to put it on the state to invest in these in these. Uh, these type of staff to work in schools because right now school counselors social workers they're all stretched too thin they're servicing way too many students and that's something that we mentioned in our report and if we did invest in those uh, positions then we would have a team a crisis management team or something that can help with students who are having these moments Um, and I, I guess my biggest thing is that if you're if you're going if you're a school resource officer and you're going into a school and you're just I'm gonna handcuff and charge whatever students out of line, are we treating this like a prison? Because it's giving correctional officer energy. It's not giving a school resource officer energy, right? You're supposed to go in and create those relationships with students. You're supposed to be able to talk a student down because you know them. Um, I saw those same situations when I was growing up in school, in high school. We had a school resource officer who was wonderful because she spoke to us all the time. And even when we were dead wrong, she would come and talk to us and we respected her enough because she always spoke to us and she knew who we were. Um, At some point, uh, the school had additional officers in our school who came in like a correctional officer. I myself was detained and told I will be charged with inciting a riot over a food fight on my birthday because we threw cake. So it's like those instances shouldn't happen. You shouldn't have officers that are coming in school just to immediately wanting arrest students. That's an issue. I like that you both talked about how this is excessive reactions to Amory and probably several other cases are the same that you've worked with, you know, of excessive reactions and not de-escalating and not even like even explaining to the child what's going on. 
I guess regardless if you say like, oh, we're arresting you or we're, det- we're detaining you, it's it's still pretty traumatizing to be placed in handcuffs when you're a child, um, you know? And so I think like, it. I mean, like you were saying, Carlton, it, it doesn't seem that it makes a lot of sense that handcuffs were even involved in this situation, much less like the aggression that was shown to Amory after being handcuffed. Um, and, and not explaining to her what was going on. And um, you both make really good points and explain that really, really well why this was incorrect behavior. Um, Can I jump in too real of quick? Of course, of I course. I think there's also, and I failed to mention, there's a Fourth Circuit case on this. So this isn't just our opinion because we're, do- we're talking about the law, right? And, and I don't have the holding in my head like I need to, but essentially the court said it's illegal to put a young person in handcuffs when they're facing a, a minor allegation or accusation and they're not a flight risk and they don't pose any kind of threat to anyone's safety. And that's what happened here. She, this officer responded to a child knocking over a trash can. I, they might, there could be other versions of this. Um, you know, I don't, I'm always taking the side of the student, right? And then the school could say something else happened. But essentially, it was that knocking over the cash, trash can that led to all this. And I think a. Marie isn't ashamed of this. She is a student with a disability. And she'll come out and tell you. And she wants to be a teacher of students with disabilities. She wants to be a special education teacher. So I know she won't, she's not ashamed of herself for having a disability, nor should she be. So you've got an SRO who's dealing with a student with a disability and isn't, and isn't thinking about that. Right? You know, so it, I don't know. I just wanted to add those things out there here. And, um, and I did want to add, too, that Amory was in handcuffs for 15 to 20 minutes. The, the cuffs were tight. She asked the officer four or five times to loosen them. Why don't you? Like, it's just, it just almost feels like you want to hurt this child. Right? Yeah. It almost feels like, like, you, like you're enjoying yourself because he, he's, he's laughing. And you're, you're my prisoner now. I have your daughter in custody. And I'm not going to loosen your cuffs. A 14-year-old. To me, that just shows that he wants to exert his authority, right? And her and children like her are going to always remember that. And they're going to go into society. And then what? They're also going to be scared of officers because this is their experience from a young age. This officer handcuffed me and laughed and made me feel like a prisoner over what? This is what is happening. And these students grow up and be adults. And now people wonder, why are we scared of officers? Why is it such a frightening moment to be pulled over? On top of all the things we see on the news, but also these these small, well, not small, but these large personal moments that happen at your during your childhood. This is traumatizing. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think that, you know, what you were saying, Carlton, about how it it feels like he's wanting to hurt this child and he's finding enjoyment in it on top of it. I mean, this being a really big personal moment for Amory, like that's going to follow her. And it's not something that she can just kind of shrug off, you know, because it's, it's scary and it hurts and it's like confusing. And suddenly like all of this is happening and nobody's really communicating with her and she's being hurt and disrespected and confined and, and yeah, of course, that's going to impact how she feels when she grows up and gets out of school and is in the world interacting with real police officers who are behaving very similarly. And we also can't 
ignore the fact that this is happening in a school, right? So then how does that impact that kid's interaction with education and the schooling? That's what this is about too. What kind of environment are you creating? So after the fact, he pulled my phone out my pocket as he seen it was ringing. And he set it on the counter of the office. And the first time my phone had rung for my mom calling me, he did not pick up. He watched it ring. And the second and third time he picked up my cell phone, after I repeatedly asked him, why are you picking up my cell phone when it's not yours to be picking up? He picked up my cell phone. Would it, when my mom asked him questions and he answered and said, basically, this is not your daughter. This is the SRO and she's under my custody. And my mom asked why I was under his custody and what happened for any of this to even have gone, how far it went. And he refused to answer. He was rude to my mom. He basically was saying harsh things to me as my mom was either off the phone or on the phone. He would say harsh things like, your mom should have taught you better and you'll be sent to OCLC and you'll get what you deserve. How you guys treated me because I've never, I've never disrespected y'all in any kind of way. I've never been that type of kid. I've always been respectful. I've always had my manners like when it came to staff. So it, it upset me, honestly. I was just upset about the whole situation because it just triggered me inside because I knew I deserved better. So I know earlier we had talked about how there's a big emphasis on parents' rights to understanding or being involved in their child's education. When the police officer answered the phone to Amory's mom and said, your child is under my custody, what exactly is meant by that? And what are parents' rights in these kinds of situations? I can't say what he meant. I don't know what he was thinking. Us Custody typically means you're arrested. Um, I don't know if that's what he was thinking. Uh, she was charged. Those charges were dismissed, by the way. As a matter of fact, they didn't even go to court on those um, the, you know, they may have something to do with the teacher saying, I don't know what happened. And there's certainly no destruction of property. But um, anyway, I mean, I don't know. I can't, I can't speak to what was going on in that officer's mind unless he's saying she's in custody um, because she's under arrest. Um, it seemed like he was goading her, though, um, at least the way I heard it. We we. Uh, through a private law firm, have requested the body-worn camera footage so we can have a a, a, a view um, of what happened. But anyway, as far as the uh, custody, why he says that, it could be because he's on, she's under arrest. As far as the parents' rights in, this, in that situation, I really can't say. I think... Uh, I don't, I don't know if the parent has any special rights um, when a child is placed in, in detention that way or in custody of an officer. Um, so I, I can't really speak to, speak to that. I'll say this. When he spoke to the mother and he made a big showboat of, I have your daughter in my custody and such, 
how is this really adding into the whole theme that our society wants to say about it takes a village to raise a child? How are you how are you supporting that goal when you're immediately coming off to that parent as I have your child in my custody? Where's the conversation, right? It it should have especially with a parent who's on the phone, doesn't know what's going on. They're hearing the first thing they hear, your child's in my custody. That already puts a parent on edge. I just feel like it just would have been a little bit more appropriate to say, hey, this is officer so-and-so. You know, we have your daughter here. There's a situation, you know, maybe you want to come down or are you able to talk? Something that just maybe allows a parent to feel like, okay, this person wants to speak to me. Instead of it feeling like, some type of correctional officer, parole officer answered the phone like, yeah, I have your kid. So to me, I just felt like the energy was all the way negative. I don't know what his intentions were. I don't want to speculate. But I know if I were a parent, I wouldn't have appreciated that. As far as parents' rights, I'm not quite sure. But I do know that like if he's making this whole show of she's in the child's in my custody as if she's arrested, that child has a right to have her mom present for any kind of conversation that's about to happen. Um, move forward. Um and again, back to my theme of de-escalation. Now you want to answer the phone call and make a show of your child is in my custody. Where, If you were going to speak to this parent, why didn't you just allow um, the child to call her mom earlier? Why didn't we get the mom involved from the beginning, right? This this goes against de-escalation. If anything, it just, and, and as a kid hearing this, you know, the officer talking to my my mom saying, She's in my custody and all this has occurred. I'm feeling scared. I, you know, that's how I would feel. I would feel scared. I would feel like even the officers talking to my mother like that. Like, what, what's going to happen further? Like, it just really heightens the situation. It causes even further distress. It's just, I just feel like he should have did better in, in, in general. He should have did better. He should have knew better and did better. The way that he phrases, like, your child's in my custody now. Like, how scary that feels as a 14-year-old sitting there in handcuffs and a, a the resource officer is saying that you're in his custody now and you don't know what's going on and you can't talk to your mom. Like, that's upsetting. And, like, that in itself is an, an added trauma of just, like, not being able to even discuss things with your mom and the harm that that does to the mother not knowing what's going on either. You know, I think that, like you were saying, he could have done a much better job and... It's it's heartbreaking that this is how that this this played out. Um, you know, I think that it's a big thing to say that the child is in his custody. You know, because Carlton, like you were saying, it it seems like that's kind of saying that he's arresting her. And if he's not, like, what is he talking about? You know, I think that there's just a lot of like a lot went badly in this situation. And this isn't uncommon, like the report, the ACLU report says. There and just to jump in, I mean, yeah. there are there, there's a distinction between detention and arrest, um, and probably under the law, this doesn't qualify as an arrest. But he said what he said, and then you like you're asking why did you say that? And then if he, if she is in custody, then she, there's a whole s- different set of rights that she's entitled to. We, we're familiar with Miranda and these kinds of things. So like, as an officer, you need to be careful what you're saying. Are you thinking about what you're doing? Are you reacting emotionally? What is your motivation? Are you trying to scare her? Use this as an exa- as a bad example. You know what I mean? As, and as an education ed- educational experience for anybody who's thinking about being an SRO or for whomever, you know, for schools. Um, I don't, 
schools don't have a say. I don't, I don't believe in who serves as an SRO in the school. Um, it's, the, it's the sheriff's office. It's the sheriff's office's um, decision. Um, and that's something when we talk about solutions, maybe we should be talking about. You know, um, how did he get into this position? Is he still there now? That's an interesting question also to explore, like if schools are able to place a report to the sheriff's offices and say, he's not a good fit. It's not working out. He's already harmed one of our students. We'd like someone else. Like if that's even something that the school has a right to do is an interesting thing for us to talk about, I think. Join us next week as we continue this conversation with Carlton and Michelle. We will be discussing the impact that SRO's actions have on students, as well as possible alternative solutions for a safer future. Stay tuned. Thank you for joining This Is How, brought to you by the ACLU of North Carolina. If this episode resonates with you, we challenge you to take action. If you go to aclu.northcarolina.org, you'll find ways to donate and volunteer. Join us on social media as well. And if you like the show, share it with your network, subscribe on YouTube or podcast app, or give us a rating at ratethispodcast.com slash A-C-L-U-N-C. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon on This Is How. This is How.